I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. If you're in the blue pew Bible, you'll find it on page 485. So again, Psalm 72. Now, I, I'd like to begin this morning. We've been in, in the book of Galatians for some time, and last week, uh, Garth preached out of the, the book of Romans, and, and now we're turning to Psalms. And in the past, I have periodically, between sermon series, I've turned to the Psalms, and uh, we've worked through a, a few Psalms here and there. So it's been a while since we've done that. So I'd like to to begin with a very basic question, to use this as a reminder. And the question is, what are the Psalms? Why do we have them? Why do we need to spend time in this book of the Psalms, which is right up in the middle of our Bible? Uh, there are 150 of them. So why? Well, let me answer that question in this way by asking another question. What was the last time for you that you listened, and I'm not talking about this morning to what we just sang, but that you yourself listened to music, music that you chose because you wanted to listen to some music? When was that? Okay, you can quietly and silently think, think about that to yourself, about when it was, uh, and I'll ask you a question. Why did you do it? Why does anyone listen to music? You know, a couple of days ago, I was sitting in a parking lot outside of a doctor's office, and I was waiting for someone to uh, come out of, out of the office. And the car that was next to me, they were doing the same thing, and they had some, some tunes that were fairly loud. They were blaring. Uh, and, you know, they probably weren't the type of music that I would have have picked. Uh, it, was, it was partly rap, uh, and, and the words that I could hear didn't particularly just settle in my heart and, and give me a great deal of joy. But why was that person listening to the music? Why is music a multi-billion dollar industry in our country? Well, the reason is because it resonates deep down inside of us. It quenches a thirst that we have. It's a God-given way of bringing us satisfaction. And that's what the book of Psalms are. They are Israel's, or were Israel's songbook. We can also call them Israel's prayer book because they were the means by which they, the people of Israel, the children of God, lifted up to God their prayers, often in the form of song. But in terms of what they did for the people, they weren't just uh, things that were said or sung in order to bring momentary satisfaction to the people, as we often find with our music and with our songs today, but they were there to minister to the people in an enduring way. Psalms resonate with us. 
They express the full range of emotions and of, of circumstances that we find ourselves in in our lives. You know, I'm sure there are certain psalms that I could go to and I could read through that many here, perhaps most here, would hear that and immediately it would bring certain things to mind. It would operate at a deep level inside of your heart. Why is it that we memorize Psalm 23 and it becomes so important to us? Because that's the way that this word works. But it does it in such a way that drives truth into our hearts. Uh, you know, we are given the Psalms because God knows that this is what we need and therefore He has provided it for us. And so, keep that in mind as we turn to Psalm 72 this morning. Now, just a couple of things about this psalm that I'd like to begin with. All of the psalms, you may or may, may, or may not have known this, all of the psalms, there are 150, they're broken into five books, separate books. I think it's uh, from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41, then 42, up to Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is the very end of the second book of Psalms. And the reason I'm sharing this with you this morning is so that you'll understand when you get when we finish get to the end of uh, Psalm 72 verses 18 and 19 and you hear this doxology almost that's that's there like a separate piece a separate doxology while well, each of the the books would they end with a doxology and and so that's there to provide an ending and then verse 20 right at the very end uh, again, it's, it's a separate verse that speaks about the authorship of all of the Psalms up to this point. And so when we get to that, you'll know and understand why these seem like separate pieces here. Now secondly, this Psalm is of a particular type. It's called a royal Psalm because it deals with the kingly leadership that represents God to the people. And so you'll notice that this psalm in particular is a prayer to the king. Now that, that may seem a little bit strange. I'm sorry, it's a prayer for the king. Uh, it's being prayed to God for the king that he will have everything that he needs in order for the people to be blessed. So recognize that up front. And then finally, just one more word. You, you may notice the inscription right at the very top of... Psalm 72, before the first verse, it says, of Solomon. Now, this can mean either that Solomon was the author of this psalm, or it can mean that someone, perhaps David, later in his life, at the end of his reign, his life, uh, that he wrote this psalm of Solomon. In other words, for, as a prayer for him. Uh, so it can mean either I tend toward the second, that this was written by David, but it could also be written by Solomon, in which case he was writing it as a prayer for him and for his own uh, reign. So have that in mind uh, as we read through Psalm 72. Uh, it's, it's got in the ESV, it has that title at the top, Give the King Your Justice. And don't forget, this is a prayer for the king. Let me read Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. 
May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations Serve him, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him, May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Please, join me in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for these words. We thank you that all of your word is one. We thank you that as we read these words which ministered to people thousands of years ago, directly in their context, that Lord, you have given these words to direct, to, to minister to our own hearts today, to tell us something specific with a specific meaning. Father, help us to have that understanding this morning and help us to apply that meaning to our own hearts and help us to see it and to know it in the context of a psalm so that it ministers to us deeply and it allows us to be able to see and to know our God. We pray for your work within us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever looked forward with a great deal of anticipation to someone who is taking the reins of leadership over you in some manner and over other people? And in that process, 
Were you thinking about all the possibilities and all the ways in which you might prosper because of the leadership of this person? Only to have things not turn out at all the way that you expected them to. Have you ever had that happen? That's actually something very common, isn't it? You know, right now, we, our country, is in the midst of a midterm election. Middle of the term, middle of the, the, the president's term. Uh, and so, if you don't have a plan to vote, you may want to think about that. Make sure you've got a plan to, to vote. But you may have, in the process of this uh, midterm election, hearing the things on the news, you may have heard the same statistic that I have heard. This is amazing. That ever since World War II, there have just been a couple of times, two times, I believe, in which the, 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 the party of the sitting president, the president who is in office at that time, this is midterm elections, has gained seats in Congress. You know, a, a president's usually elected with all sorts of fanfare and, and expectations about uh, all the things that uh, the president's going to, to do uh, with the economy, perhaps with the security within our country, with the judicial system, with uh, the, the moral issues of the day. But the midterm elections, if you look across all of them since World War II, with the exception of two, have pretty much stood as a rebuke of sorts of the president, meaning that all of those expectations, or at least many of them, the people didn't find to come to fruition. And it raises this question, why is there such a big difference between the expectations when it comes to leadership coming into place and the actual results? Well, you know, I, I think it's got to have something to do with the human condition because it's not just here in the United States that we experience this, but it's other countries uh, as well. And I'm not going to go into that, but there's plenty of evidence that this is almost always the case, that the expectations are far greater than the reality when it comes. And the same thing was true 3,000 years ago in Israel the king who had been in office for almost 50 years. He was the second king of Israel, David. Uh, at this point, when he was transitioning from office, uh, we can read in the book of First Kings, right at the beginning, how his son Solomon transitioned into office. Uh, and there were some interruptions right there at the very beginning, but he did transition into office and right at that time, there were tremendous expectations for his kingship, for how he would lead the country and for what the results would be for the people of the country. And the reason for much of the, that expectation, it dates back to the time, we've, we can find this in 2 Samuel 7, when God made his covenant with David. And at that time, as part of the covenant, uh, God promised David that one of his offspring, his sons, would have a kingdom. 
And it would be an everlasting kingdom. And it would be established by God. And that through Him, through this King, that God would provide for the people. And over time that came to be seen and understood that he, will, he would provide for the people in such a way that they would never lack security, that they would never lack provision, that they would never lack prosperity. You know, imagine that. Uh, a, a promise that great. Well, this promise eventually resulted in the king that they were waiting for coming to be known as the anointed one. So he wasn't just an anointed king, he was the anointed one. And the word in Hebrew is Messiah. And it's that expectation, the expectation of that, ultimately the Messiah, that serves as the basis for this psalm. Now you can imagine in that type of a situation, Israel would have used this psalm as their prayer that they might experience this king, this leadership, and therefore experience the results that we see in this prayer. But maybe you know the history. King Solomon, he did start off well. And he had a lot of, a lot of great accomplishments early on. But we also know, especially in the later, the, the, near the end of his reign, that he rebelled against the Lord. And that he, he fell short uh, he did not reign with righteousness, and therefore the expectations that were there were not met. He fell way short of them. And the same thing happened with king after king after king in the line of David. Now, some were far better than others, but none were even close to meeting the expectations that were always there for this, for the greater son of David. And so in the experience of the people... They had this great expectation for a king that would, would lead them in righteousness and, and justice and provide for them in many ways. And then their experience was far, far short of this. Think about ourselves. You know, I often hear uh, from people laments about the leadership of our day, especially referring to uh, the top office and other offices uh, within our country, lamenting about the state of our country, even with an expectation there that there should be something far better than this. Uh, and that expectation there, election cycle after election cycle, as we look for something far better. You think about it, that's right, isn't it? Because we should have a desire as God's people we should have this desire inside for a leadership that leads us in the right way that leads us in the way at least to some extent that we see here uh, rather than what we often see uh, coming out of our leadership our, sh our, our hearts should have that longing for the ways of the Lord so that we, we want for our children that they would have these things. We want for our institutions that they would be the bearers of these things for our military, for our justice system. But it can be tremendously disheartening to see time after time the expectation is there, perhaps, at times, 
but the reality is far different. Now the truth is, and that's what this uh, psalm bears out to us, that we as God's people don't fret and we don't lament as those who have no hope. Look with me at the first two verses of this psalm. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. You know what the psalmist was praying for here? He was praying for a king who would lead with the righteousness and with the justice of God. That's literally what he's praying for. And then in the rest of this psalm, what he's saying the result from that would be is that when this king is our king, this king who's leading in this way becomes our king, then we will experience true blessing. We will experience true peace, true security. We will find satisfaction. Remember the purpose for the Psalms? It is to help us to have that satisfaction. Uh, now, as we go through this psalm, I'd like for us to understand, yes, what the psalmist is praying for, what he was longing for in that day when he was writing the psalm. But then I also want us to see that even though we may have similar longings in our day, and that's, that's right and that's good, that we should also have great satisfaction. Because all of this is ultimately found and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. What that means is that we are able to know today and experience the effects and the blessings of His righteous reign. Even as we look forward with anticipation, because we're not there yet, with anticipation of, of all of this being finally consummated. But this psalm, for those who know Christ, should be a psalm that ministers to our hearts and that resonates deeply within us as we're able to see what we have today in Christ our King. So, first... I'd like for us to look at the first seven verses of this psalm where we see here a prayer for a, a, a righteous and prosperous reign. A righteous and prosperous reign. Now, the expectation that's brought out here was that, again, when there was a king ruling over God's people who embodied this type of righteousness and this type of justice which came from God, when that happened, then... There would be true righteousness and, and justice and security and provision for the people throughout the land. That's what this prayer is about. And that's why in the first couple of verses there, I'm going to read them again in a second, the plea here is that the, that the king would have God's justice and God's righteousness. For who? For the benefit of God's people. It says, give the king your justice, O God. And your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. You know, the, the, the starting point clearly here is for the king to possess 
the character and the virtues that only the Lord God possesses. And when this was the case, they knew that the result would be this beautiful place of prosperity, beautiful place of, of well-being for God's people. And that's what we see in verses 3 and following. Uh, look with me, verse 3. Let the mountains bear prosperity. Now that word in the Hebrew is shalom. It means peace, tranquility, security, well-being. May the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May He defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. You know, this is all really a poetic way of saying that for God's people, there's a sense in this world today in which when this king is ruling, that the curse that came because of sin is somehow removed and blessing, the way of blessing is opened up. Remember the curse, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Now, I'm just going to read a couple of words uh, from it, but this is, this is the time of the fall. This is the time of sin coming into the world, and the result was, uh, this is the Lord speaking to Adam Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. That's the curse. Yet now what we see is this picture of that finally in creation itself being removed for the people. Let the mountains bear prosperity and the hills in righteousness. Uh, there's this great sense of the Lord's provision that comes to the people because of the King. And then this continues, verse 5, May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. You know, the reigning of this King over the people is as long as the moon endures. It's, it's in that sense... Forever, it's until the Lord returns. It will go on. And then we get this, this picture, beautiful picture, of people flourishing, godliness thriving amongst the people as God's covenant blessings are laid upon them. Look at verse 6. May He, it's speaking about the King, may He be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. It's a picture of the ground needing the rain, the water, and it's being provided. And then verse 7, In His days the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. I hope you can hear in that the beauty of this picture. Doesn't that describe what you'd like to see in your own life? So, what do you think? Do you experience something of this? Something of this picture? Something of this peace? This provision? What do you think? Are you able to experience this? Now, your response to me when I ask that question might be, well, how could I? 
Look at the world in which I live, the world in which we live today. We live in a culture often driven by the leadership in which, let's be honest, evil abounds. There are hearts that are oriented against God. There is so often very little concern truly for life, especially for that of the weak, that of the downtrodden. You know, I, I, I recognize that in political speak in our day, uh, there, there are often words that are given that, yes, we're watching over the, the, the weak and the needy. But in truth, we can see through that, can't we? That that's, for the most part, just, just political speak. We live in a world in which injustice abounds. There's idolatry. Uh, immoral issues are, are held up and even celebrated so that people regularly call evil good and they call good evil. And it's true that the world in which we live, the leadership, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, is an ungodly leadership. And so back to that question. Are you able to know anything of this in this world today as you live your life? Well, for the believer, the answer should be, and it must be, yes, yes, yes. Because we are able, now not in its fullness, but you and I are able to live lives that know daily the experience that the, the psalmist is praying for here. Uh, maybe you noticed as we went through the first seven verses of this psalm, how even though this psalm is apparently for Solomon and for Solomon's successors, that it goes well beyond any human leader or what any human king could possess. And that's why, even though there were glimpses at times of, of kings that had a heart for the Lord, but by and large, that's why that was missing entirely and this was only finally fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means is that if you know Christ today, that your life is ruled over, your heart is ruled over by this King. By the one, look at verse 2, who judges His people with righteousness and His poor with justice. The result of Christ ruling over our hearts well, we actually see that throughout the New Testament. It's, it's a witness throughout of Christ ruling over hearts. We see it in places like, this is one out of Philippians chapter 4. Uh, Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then we've got out of the book of John, we've got Jesus' words uh, Himself as He says to the disciples, and it's for those, the followers of Christ, He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And we could go on and on. We could go on to look at where this comes from. It, it comes because the true enemy that we have in this world, sin and Satan, ultimately has been conquered. Satan destroyed. Even though he is active today, we know that finally uh, the Lord Jesus has had victory. 
And so, therefore, we experience and are able to prosperity and well-being as a result of Christ's rule. Now, just to be clear, I don't want to mislead anyone. The prosperity that this psalm speaks about is not that of the prosperity, so-called prosperity gospel, false teachers. It's not something that's temporary, but it's permanent. It's not something that's of just the trappings of this world, holy, but it's ultimately of God. It consists in true peace and true joy, even in the midst of trial and tribulation. And all of this comes, why? Because we have a righteous king, a just king, who is ruling over us. That's one thing the psalmist was praying for. Now we also find here, verses 8 through 14, we find a prayer for worldwide reign. Think about Israel for a moment. Think back in the Old Testament especially. Israel, in the grand scheme of things, was not one of those great powers. Israel was not a Babylon. Israel was not an Assyria. An Egypt, even. Israel didn't have that kind of in its leadership. And yet, the language in verses 8 through 11 anticipated reign of this king, that, that this reign, this king, would go way beyond the borders of Israel. And so the psalmist shows that by using examples of places that to these Israelites would have represented a vast kingdom. And notice as I, as I read this, with Gentile kings submitting themselves and their peoples to the Davidic king. Now look with me at verse 8. May he, this is speaking about the king, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river. It's talking about the Euphrates, if you know where that was located in relation to Israel. From the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render in tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. It's speaking about these far away places that would render themselves in obedience to this king. And so again, even though Solomon's kingdom, we know about it, it was, it was fairly large by Israel's standards, but this is not describing anything of that nature. This is anticipating the universal reign of the Messiah. Now, isn't that really what every kingdom in the world looks for. Think about all those today, the, the, the big kingdoms of the world jockeying for a place of power. Think about the United States itself. Uh, you can also think about China, Russia, UK, other, other places. All in certain ways, especially economically, militarily, with the trump card of nuclear power, seeking after that unspoken goal of really universal dominion. Yet how encouraging it should be that we read these words. Look at verse 11. 
May all kings fall down before Him. All nations serve Him. No exceptions. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. Again, back in Philippians, Paul said, and this is drawn out of the Old Testament, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's what the psalmist here is anticipating. And so for us to know that He, the King, the Messiah, our King, is reigning today, that His reign is universal, even though it's not fully consummated, we're not fully able to see Him face to face, to know the fullness of that kingdom today, we can know that we are a part of that kingdom. And that should bring us a great sense of security and a peace of mind and of heart. And then, to what end? To what end is His rule? Well, it's very different. Very different from that of all the other kings. Look with me at verses 12 to 14. Now, now this is giving the reason that the psalmist prays for the king to have a universal rule. Verse 12. For He delivers the needy when He calls the poor, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Now, this points to a special responsibility that the king had. This is a responsibility of earthly kings to take care of, to be there for the most vulnerable of the needy. Now, therefore, this is often given in a literal sense, speaking of those who lack material things, and that's clearly inherent here in the prayer for the earthly king. But there's also a deeper sense in which the psalmist is not only referring to the material, but is referring to the spiritually poor. The kingdom of God today is composed of those who know that they are spiritually deficient. In other words, who know that they are, are sinful, who know that they are wretched. There's a place in Romans chapter 7, just after the Apostle Paul had been speaking about struggling with his own sin, and he, he, it's almost like a crescendo. He's been struggling and struggling. And then he comes to this point and he says right at the end of chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, if you think about that, that's a, it's a, a terrible statement in a sense. There's this real sense of uh, deep agony and even of depression there. But do you know what he says right after that? Immediately, he says... Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul was a man who knew his own condition. He knew his own heart. He knew his sinfulness. And he struggled with it deeply. He was poor in spirit. But at the same time, he knew his king. And he was lifted up by his king. 
And he knew that he was able to live under the security of his rule. Listen to, to Jesus talk about this back in Matthew chapter 5, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We often call these the Beatitudes, but it's really a statement of the Christian life. This is the nature of the Christian life. Listen, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Can you hear that in the psalmist's words here? For they shall be satisfied. You know, again, this is the nature of the Christian in this world. And so as we together come to the Lord's table this morning, uh, we come as those who know that we are needy and that we are weak so that in confessing our sin, what happens? We are driven to a greater dependence upon the Lord Jesus. The same things that we just heard out of the Beatitudes. You know, what a joy it is to live under the worldwide reign of this King and to experience His righteousness and His prosperous reign. Now finally, and briefly, I just want to touch on this last section, verses 15 through 16 uh, in our text. This is, this is a prayer that the king would have a long reign. Now the psalmist looks here for the reign of this king to go on and on and to provide really in essence a, a fount of unending blessing. And so the picture here is of the king himself constantly receiving blessing and provision from God so that the prosperity of his reign continues without end. Look with me at verse 15. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. And continuing, verse 16, May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like grass of the field. May his name continue or endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. You know, we get this picture uh, elsewhere in, in Scripture. This uh, great picture of the, the wonderful reign of this king and the experience of the people that becomes a draw to the entire world so that other nations want to come and they want to participate in this. Uh, one place that uh, we get this in a beautiful way is in Isaiah chapter 2. I'm just going to read part of this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, listen to the words, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. You know, this is the kingdom of God. 
This is the kingdom that we today are able to participate, to take part in, and that is to be an attraction to the world around us. Because we receive blessing from this kingdom that exceeds anything else that this world has to offer. So that, and this is the picture that we see in Scripture, that people from every tribe and tongue and nation come and they want to hear and they want to participate and they want to receive. And so you've got this collection of God's people with hearts united together, ruled over by their king, given over to the rule of this king, even in a world in which injustice abounds so that we are able to know true peace, everlasting security, wonderful comfort, no matter what we face in this world. You know, in in closing, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but the three hymns that we're singing this morning, including the last one, they come from Psalm 72. I'm just going to read a few words from this hymn that we'll be singing in just a couple of moments. Uh, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. People and realms of every tongue dwell on his love with sweetest song, and infant voices shall proclaim their earthly blessings on his name. Blessings abound where'er he reigns. The prisoner leaps to loose his chains. The weary find eternal rest, and all the sons of want are blessed. You know, it is a beautiful thing to live in the kingdom of God, to know the King ourselves personally. And that's what we're going to be uh, recalling, remembering this morning as we come to the table, that for all those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ and that know Him are able to live under His beneficent rule as children of His. And so this morning, with great thanksgiving, we come together and we recall what it means. We remember what Christ has done for us. And that therefore, we are able to be in that kingdom. And therefore, we are able to experience those blessings. Let's take joy in that this morning. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that we are able to know a great king with a great rule. We thank you, Lord, that today, all over the earth, that you are reigning. Hearts submitted to you. Hearts coming together to express worship to their King. We thank You, Lord, that we can participate in that. At the same time, Lord, we do live in a world that draws us away constantly, a world that uh, troubles our hearts in many ways, including with the election cycle. And so we pray, Lord, that You would help us to live in this world to do the things that we are called to in this world while celebrating and enjoying the blessings of the kingdom. Uh, We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace and provision. In Christ's name, amen.